Hello, I'm Raymond. And I'm Zara, and we're from the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates College. The Multifaith Chaplaincy warmly and creatively nurtures the religious, spiritual, secular, and searching communities at Bates College to encourage students to live into fullness and build deeper connections. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the Bates community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they found meaning along the way. Our guest today is Hoi Ning Nai, Associate Director of Employer Engagement and Business Advising in the Bates Center for Purposeful Work. Hoi Ning sat down via Zoom with multi-faith fellows Kushi Choudhury and Cyan Hunt to discuss being a sociable introvert, the importance of four-hour conversations, and being a little bit meta. Hi, Hoi Ning. Welcome to um, our podcast. Hello. So just to start us off, can you tell us about where you grew up and about your earliest memories of childhood? Sure. So I grew up in New York City, first in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and then in Woodside, Queens. I spent the majority of my childhood in the housing projects, which were predominantly Black and Latino, and there were very few Asian families in the neighborhood at the time. My parents immigrated from Guangzhou in southern China to Hong Kong and then to the U.S., and my grandmother, my mom's mom, came to live with us when we moved to the projects. I was seven, my brother was five, so it was five of us in a small two-bedroom apartment for many years until I went away to college. In terms of my earliest and favorite memories of growing up, I would say those would be school trips when I was really young. So we went to places like the Pierpont Morgan Library and the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Hayden Planetarium. And these were all places I don't think my mom would have ever known to take us to, especially since she didn't speak very much English. But after I went with my classmates, I dragged my mom and my brother back on the subway to all of these places since I knew where they were now. And I would say that New York was a really great place to grow up. I think I really took for granted how much there was to see and to do. These days I rarely visit, but whenever I do, I always you know, have to figure out where I want to revisit, whether I want to revisit a favorite spot or check out someplace new. Wow, that sounds like such a cosmopolitan upbringing, and <laughs> I love that. So is, is who you are today similar to who you were in high school and college? I would say to some extent, yes. I feel like I've always been one of those people to, you know, get lost in their own thoughts. And I think I've always been a little bit meta. So I spend a lot of time really considering why I'm thinking what I'm thinking and feeling what I'm feeling. Just, you know, sitting with my thoughts and emotions and, and wondering, you know, how they all come to be. And so I found some people in my life who are similarly reflective, but I wouldn't say very many. So I just don't think that that's the kind of thing that comes up too often in, in casual conversation. So people often get so busy like living life that they don't take the time to stop and, and reflect on the process of living that life. And so I feel like I definitely do a lot more reflecting, engage in a lot more reflecting 
than maybe the average person. So I feel like that piece hasn't changed very much. I do think though that I've gotten a lot more independent in terms of doing what I want to do and when I want to do it. In high school, I think I was going through the motion of, of AP classes just like everybody else. And in college, I was naively pre-med. It was simply easier to have structure and, and safer to have structure than to really like dig in and explore everything liberal arts has to offer. I think I also succumbed to a lot of pressure from the Asian stereotype in terms of focusing on math and science, which I honestly was really good at, but I also wanted to do a lot more and study a lot more. And I don't think I gave myself the, the space to do that. I also regretted not studying abroad because I was pre-med. I never realized that they were you know, not mutually exclusive. So now whenever I can travel pre-COVID, post-COVID, I will travel. I also feel like I have a lot of creative energy, but I never found a way to channel that when I was younger. And so now I try to write whenever I can. And also a lot of things that I would have loved and maybe been interested in pursuing in undergrad, I tried to pursue in grad school once I was there. So I was involved in student government. I was you know, involved in teaching fitness classes. I also took some acting classes. Mm -hmm. So at this point, you know, life's too short. So now if I want to go do something, I'll just go and do it. Um, so as somebody who is also very reflective, I want to ask, I find that people get sort of caught up in the sort of the rhythms of daily existence and, and paychecks and responsibilities. And, mm -hmm. and that's where some people end up losing that piece of them after school and college. So I was wondering, does it, has it just always come naturally to you or did you actively sustain that? in yourself growing up? I would say that it was fairly natural. I think it's simply part of my personality to be residing in my head a lot. It's not to say that I was necessarily super introverted or whatnot, but I do agree with you that we get so busy that sometimes we need to be intentional about carving out the time and carving out the space. I, I, think, I don't think that that's everyone's cup of tea, which is fine, but I do think that for those of us who want to make sure they get the most out of every moment, it's important that we think about all the moments that have just passed. I think that is like something that we all sort of aim to make space for, but like don't really don't really get there a lot of the times so that's so so interesting um you were talking a little bit before about you know these like big formative times in your life and so speaking of big formative times um can you tell us a little bit about where you went to college was there anybody that stood out to you at that time like who was a big influencer role model to you at that time yeah that's a great question so i went to dartmouth college in hanover new hampshire and i was it i was in the class of 2000 so I honestly can hardly believe that I started college over 20 years ago. It's kind of crazy. But I have to say, growing up in the projects, I was really excited to get out of that whole urban jungle and experience someplace that was less crowded, less intense, and honestly, less scary. I 
think I was really looking for that idyllic tucked away campus and that's exactly what I got. So Dartmouth was exactly what the brochures made it out to be, super picture perfect and especially in the winter. And I think Dartmouth is probably one of the biggest reasons I love winter so much. Mm -hmm. I will say in terms of campus climate, personally, I remember it to be fairly welcoming. I mean, it was still a predominantly white institution. So I was clearly the minority in many spaces, but I think I was also particular and selective in getting involved with things that were inherently more diverse and finding friends that were also more diverse. So I was involved in a number of Asian and also diversity focused organizations and groups. I was part of the leadership discovery program, which was specifically meant for first year students. And that was extremely diverse in terms of the composition. I was also in a sorority and that was great because I never had sisters growing up. So that was something that was really important to me. And the house that I was in was more diverse than some of the other houses. So again, all of these things were very specific choices I think I made. Um, in terms of my biggest mentor, I would say my biggest mentor in college was my Dean of Student Life. And for several years, and I probably still say it now, I literally said, I want to be Holly. And I think it wasn't until I realized how much was under her purview. <laughs> that was when I changed my mind. But that being, that being said, I really admired how she really advocated for diversity as a white woman. And I think it meant a lot to see someone not of color support students of color as passionately, as thoughtfully as she did. And it made me realize that you don't need to be a member of a group to, to step up for them. So ever since Dartmouth, she's really been the one I turn to whenever I'm trying to make major professional decisions in my life. And it's also been really great to connect as colleagues as I've moved you know, further along in my career. You said before that, that Dartmouth was like exactly how it looked in the brochure, but was there anything about that experience that surprised you? I think that... It was interesting to have folks from so many different places, domestically and globally. I think it's different when you hear about a place being diverse, but you've only yourself experienced New York City, or you've only mm. experienced your hometown. For right? sure. <laughs> so, right, it's just like, yeah, diversity is so great, but to actually meet someone from Montana who goes hunting like on a weekend, you're just like, this isn't just what's on television or in the movies. Like this is like someone with a totally different life experience. You know, my parents were again, immigrants. My mom was a seamstress. My dad was a waiter. So I felt like they were doing these very blue collar, hands-on sorts of jobs. And then you meet, you know, the sons and daughters of lawyers and doctors and diplomats. I think it means a lot to actually be having those conversations, sitting around um, in the hallway of your first year dorm. It's different to hear about, you know, those things happening and actually participating in them. So that was kind of amazing.
did you have any plans post-graduation that you that you were sure about and uh, did those end up being different from what you ended up doing? I had no plans whatsoever. I have to say that I, I attempt throughout my entire college career, so every college break, I attempt in various offices and I just decided to do that, to keep doing that until I figured out my next steps afterward. And I was also naively pre-med for way too long, way too <laughs> long. I took organic chem twice. I even took the MCAT, but by senior winter. And that's what I mean by very long time before wow. I decided. Wow. Right, right. <laughs> so by senior winter, I knew I didn't want to pursue that route. And I had no idea exactly what I wanted to do. But I also knew that it meant something to graduate from my high school. So I graduated from Stuyvesant High School, which is the top public school in New York City. I think it also meant a lot to graduate from Dartmouth. So I wasn't worried at all about being able to find something. Right after graduation, I alternated between temping and traveling. And as the fall started, I got a part-time job actually supporting high school students who were Asian American who were doing HIV AIDS advocacy work in Asian communities. Hmm. I also volunteered part-time at my friend's high school in their college counseling office. And those are really rewarding experiences, really interesting experiences, really stretched me in different ways. But a few months later, I realized that I really needed to make money. <laughs> so even mm -hmm. though I had dismissed everything corporate while I was in college, I knew that my friends who were in banking and who were in consulting, they were the ones you know, making solid money. And so I tried to find a way that I could work on things that I cared about in those corporate spaces. So I actually, I cold emailed someone doing diversity work in human resources at Credit Suisse, which is one of the biggest investment banks. And she connected me to her former boss who was hiring for a human resources analyst. And that was my first full-time job. And it wasn't until a while later that I found out that she only opened my email because I had said I graduated from Dartmouth and she had apparently graduated three years earlier. I also found out that my former boss I'm sorry, I found out that her former boss, my new boss, hired me because he went to a rival high school in New York. He went to Bronx Science when he was <laughs> young. Um, so you never know what about your background will really catch someone's eye. Um, I just wanted to quickly ask, you have been out of college. It's been like 20 years, you mentioned. Do you feel like today there's just much more pressure on students to figure out what they're going to be doing and this, this way of working three to four jobs and having these varied experiences isn't as much of a thing anymore? I would say there's always been a lot of pressure on students to figure out some of that stuff. I think it varies depending on, honestly, the people around you. There have always been intense parents. I've worked in student affairs and advising and everything higher ed for a while. And I've had a lot of interactions with parents. So you have some parents who are just naturally fairly intense. I think that there are also certainly, you know, first generation cultural considerations in terms of pressure. I think that there is definitely an increasing focus on 
the junior internship and then the sophomore internship and now what should students be doing in their first year. I think that that has definitely, I concur, increased somewhat. I do think that there is pressure to know, but I don't think that there's a need to know exactly. I think that there's a need for skill cultivation, but not necessarily to pigeonhole where you're going to apply those skills and how you're going to apply those skills. Do you feel like you found a particular purpose or passion in life? And you know, you've told us about some of the many things you've dipped your toes in over the years. And did any of those things help you find your passion? I do. I think that's a really interesting question. I love working with students and helping them figure out who they are, who they want to be, how to get there. I think it's honestly where I find the most joy and the most purpose. In terms of figuring that out, I think it actually came out of serious Dartmouth withdrawal. So I will confess here that I went up to Dartmouth all the time in my first year. I literally went up every three to four weeks, whether it was a car ride with someone for four and a half hours or a train ride for seven hours. So all the time. But I was really attached and I, I loved my friends. But the reality is I wasn't necessarily always going up just to socialize. I was often going up to do an event with career services or to connect with my mentor or to connect with the assistant dean working with Asian students. So I think I loved advising and mentoring. I loved getting it. I loved giving it. And so I loved really going back to campus and talking to younger students about their plans for life after college. So after a lot of consultation with my mentors, I went on to pursue my master's and my doctorate in higher ed because I knew that was the space I wanted to operate in. That was a space and the population that I enjoyed working with most. So it was only after I got to UCLA and serendipitously found my way to academic advising in my second year of school that I figured out where I wanted to start my career. And I hadn't had good advising at Dartmouth. Dartmouth is amazing for many things, but I had not had good <laughs> advising there. So when I realized that I could provide students with better advising than I'd gotten, I was really motivated to pursue this particular pathway. So I ended up doing academic advising for 13 years before exploring other avenues and pathways in higher ed to help students find meaning and purpose. What, what drew you to Bates as a place to work, um, as a community to make yourself a part of? Yeah, great question. I have always loved Maine. I went to Dartmouth and some of my closest friends actually grew up in Maine, in Falmouth. And I had a chance to spend time in Falmouth, in Portland, all the way up in Holton and Bangor. So I've had a lot of exposure to the state and my friend, remembers that I specifically said 20 years ago when I first visited Maine, he remembers me saying, can I just move here and retire here already? <laughs> and the fact that I finally made it here is amazing. It is not for want of trying. So I have definitely tried many times to, to make it up here. So I think that was a really big draw being in Maine, loving all that the state has to offer in terms of fresh air, nature, 
it's, it's really, some of us just have connection to certain places and spaces. And for me, I think that I do have that connection to Maine as a place. Prior to this, I was at UNC Chapel Hill. Prior to that, I was at Kenyon College. Um, prior to that, I was at the Wharton School at UPenn. And then prior to that, I was at UCLA and Dartmouth. I experienced a number of different institutional types, sizes, places, cities, regions. And I will always be in love with New England. I will always be in love with the smaller schools. Dartmouth was you know, the smallest, if not one of the smallest Ivies, and that was why I chose it. And that was why that was my number one place to be for college. But all of the places that I think that I've loved most in my career are the smaller institutions where people are looking again to be in community with each other and not just the students. The faculty and the staff, when they come to work at a place like Bates, they're looking for a space where people really wanna to get to know each other and that the institution as a whole and all the individuals within it value that connection and that community. So being able to, to do that was really important. And then finally, I have always been interested in connecting with students on a deeper level and helping them find their way. And I started my career in academic advising and kind of meandered through some different areas, but I loved that I get to work at the Bates Center for Purposeful Work because as I've shared, I think a lot about meaning, I think a lot about purpose, I'm not sure there could be a better place for me to end up than a, than a center called the Center for Purposeful Work, because it's something that mm -hmm. I think about every day in terms of the work that I do. It's something that I think about every time I talk to a student about what they want to do with their lives. So it's as meta as meta could be. <laughs> nice. And you love the cold. And I love the cold, and I love the winter, and I love snow, and I'm so sad it has not come yet. I know it's only November, but the fact that there hasn't been snow except for a couple of flakes is highly disappointing to me right now. <laughs> You've told us about your passions and how they relate to your work, but outside of your working life, what do you find to be most life-giving? That is an amazing question. So I love making connections with people. I love hearing stories. I love seeing stories. And I think that's why I love media and social media as much as I do. I am very enamored with TV, with film, and with theater. And I think they really capture human existence in new and different ways. So I, I really love Netflix. I really love all of the streaming platforms, but I also really love theater. And there's been several productions, you know, from as close as Portland, Maine to New York and LA and even Bristol in the UK. And with the industry having a hard time given the pandemic, I'm trying to support as many productions um, as I can. I also know that social media can be a hot mess in many, many ways, <laughs> but I do personally love and appreciate how it's given me the space to 
share things with others, whether it's people that I know really well or, or even strangers. I am a self-proclaimed sociable introvert. So I don't like crowds. I like interacting, but after some degree of in-person interactions, I'm exhausted. So I like to recuperate on my own. But I do love the ability to you know, share pieces of my life and my thoughts on things through Facebook, through Instagram. I think it's amazing because you get to see these snippets from, from people you know, and even from strangers. And I think that makes the world just a little bit smaller and navigable. You know, Huining, um, I've never heard that term before, but I'm gonna start using it because I think it describes me as well. Yes, I love that term and I love that answer. Uh, and I just wanted to ask, uh, do you have any favorite plays or TV shows or movies that you would like to share with us? I would share two in particular. One is Queen's Gambit. Um, it's on Netflix. It's amazing. I just started watching that. It's so brilliant in so many ways. It does a really, really amazing job in capturing this very, very unique story in such a compelling way that you literally cannot stop watching. And so you end up binging it for hours and hours and hours. And to, for any film to get you that caught up, I think it's, it's done its job. The other one that I also love right now is Dash and Lily. That's also on Netflix. It's based in New York. I've said earlier that I rarely ever go home because it's so crowded and it's so busy, but Dash and Lily, it's, it's a love story and it's a teen love story, but it's set against this backdrop of New York City that's just so amazing. And it's a love letter to New York as much as it is um, this amazing, amazing show and this amazing short series but I would definitely highly recommend that, especially for the holidays. Yes, I recently completed Dash and Lily and I think it was just beautiful and so fun. Um, you talked about how you're trying to support the theater uh, in the middle of the pandemic. And I wanted to ask in this environment, how, how are you maintaining connections and relationships with friends and loved ones or communities? Sure, I think technology does wonders. And I think we need to take advantage of it. As I just mentioned, social media is really helpful for maintaining a lot of those connections and getting these snapshots of people's lives. I think, you know, whether it's big events, like someone getting married or someone having a baby or just small things, you know, when someone is, you know, celebrating a success or sharing a disappointment, I think even these like random communications, these and random images, they all make you feel like you're there with these, these people that you know and love and care about. Clearly, Zoom has a bustling business right now. And mm -hmm. I was recently on Zoom with one of my closest friends, and she's currently locked in Bhutan, like physically locked in Bhutan because of the pandemic, wow. and there are very limited travel options. I also got to be at a Zoom baby shower for my friend who's having her first baby. <laughs> And a few weekends ago, I had the luxury of waking up at 1130 on a Sunday, which is fabulous. Everyone should do it every so often, if not all the time. And I stayed in bed on a four hour phone call with an old roommate from grad school days. And I have to say, I know a lot of young people are communicating just on text, 
So I know it's hard sometimes to even carry on like a short conversation, much less a long one, but I don't know if I'd be in such a good place right now if I wasn't really able to lean on those long conversations because it takes some time to kind of get started. But once you actually get into the conversation, especially if you haven't talked to someone in a really long time, there's just so much to share and so much to catch up on. And, and I think with us all being in the pandemic, people do get a bit more time to think and to consider what's important to them. And that's, those are the kind of things that take a long conversation for some of those thoughts to come out. Yeah, I will say the pandemic has made me a big proponent of a long phone call. Um, so I'm a big fan. I'm a really yeah. Big fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, research shows that young people are increasingly looking towards their work to find a source of meaning in their lives. And you're somebody who works with young people a lot. Um, so is there anything you think we should be focusing on or preparing students to do to find meaning in their lives? Definitely. I think students... I mean, I honestly think everyone needs to spend more time on reflection. I think that's a common theme in, in um, any comments I share. But I think everyone needs to be a little bit more meta. I <laughs> think um, everyone would benefit from being a little bit more meta. You won't know where to find meaning unless you actually spend time thinking about and figuring out what gives you and your life meaning. So if we really want to help students, we need to start asking them deeper questions when they're really young. So besides asking children who or what they like or don't like, we need to ask them why they feel that way, right? We spend so much time on the who, what, when, and where, and not enough time on the why. So as a side hustle, I work with high school students on their college essays. And for many students, writing those college essays, that's often the first time that they get asked deeper questions, right? About who they wanna be, where they want their life to go, why certain things matter. And I realize that schools and teachers, they're super busy educating students on content, but unless we help them reflect on themselves and their identities and their agency, how are they ever going to figure out how to connect with the content. They, they really need to know themselves before they can understand their relationships to the world around them. So you've said that you're somebody who likes to think about things like in a very meta and big picture kind of way. So that's really important. And so how, how do you think we can help students see what they can become as opposed to what they already are? Well, I personally love the idea of being a guide for students. So I'm not here to direct them one way or another, simply to show them that their opportunities are more than just what they see in front of them. I think it's about helping students open their eyes to possibilities and pathways that they haven't considered yet. And I think a lot of that comes out of having my own eyes opened by others, by other people around me. I certainly learned a lot from those who served as guides for me. And I mean, I came from a low income family with immigrant parents. I had no idea what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be. But throughout my life, I've sought counsel, I've explored options. 
made choices, and I found my way to meaningful and purposeful work. So I think it's about helping students see their own potential, as well as their own agency and empowerment. And I feel like at this point, when we're privileged enough to have that power of choice, we really need to accept that power and be thoughtful and do good with it. Um, I feel like you've already touched on this a little bit uh, in terms of human connection and reflection, but what gives you meaning? Yep. So again, it's the one-on-one -on -one connections that really help me understand someone's story and someone's journey. It often takes a while for people to open up and to share something deep and thoughtful about themselves. Sometimes it's because we're afraid of judgment. And oftentimes it's because we've never been asked the questions that prompt those answers. So that means you need to take more time to think about your answer to my question. But regardless, when I get to hear someone's history and how their choices have led them to where they are now, that's the most meaningful kind of engagement that I can have with someone. And I would say that if I could have an interaction like that every day for the rest of my life, I would be truly fulfilled. And just going off of that, what type of mark would you like to leave on this world? Yeah, I love that question. So <laughs> I would say if at my funeral, I could have students from every institution and organization I've ever worked at share a story about a meaningful conversation we've had, I feel like I would have left the kind of mark I wanted to leave behind. And that's really the best part of the work. You know, when a light bulb turns on, or a fire starts behind the eyes, like something has clicked, something has ignited. So if I could have that kind of impact on every student I meet, and not because I'm trying to have that effect, but simply because a natural conversation leads to some kind of illumination, I feel like I would have made a meaningful contribution to the world. So I think that's the end of our interview. Thank you so much. Um, this you. has been a really, lovely and enlightening time, Cushy. Uh, yeah, it's been so lovely uh, getting to know a bit more about you and the work you do. Thank you. I hope it all made sense. <laughs> Buen camino Buen desvío Buen tropiezo Buena recuperación Buena herida Buen remedio, buen fracaso y buena redención. Thank you to the Bates Digital Media Studio, the Multifaith Fellows, Multifaith Chaplain Brittany Longstorff, and Hoi Ning for sharing her story with us. Also a big thank you to Soli Canto and Elisa Amador for the use of their original music. Soli Canto is an award-winning musical ensemble consisting of Elisa and both of her parents. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time. Buena angustia, buen alivio, buen conflicto, buena Buen descanso, buen trabajo, buena lucha y buena aceptación. <tose>
camino. El camino es destino. El camino es tropiezo. Buena Y bueno.